we turn this morning to Revelation chapter 22 this morning. Revelation chapter 22. And our focus this morning will be verses 1 through 5. And I want to remind you something uh, as we enter into the final chapter of the book of Revelation. That revelation itself from beginning to end is the most practical book in all of the New Testament. Having now we've uh, studied it and preached through it, I, I stand resolved that that statement I made in the very first message is absolutely true. That this book for the church of Jesus Christ, living in the church age between the ascension of Jesus Christ and until His return, the book of Revelation is a means of grace, a practical means of grace given to us, which pictures for us a vision of Christ to help the church in its day, to discourage us from worldliness and idolatry and drift from Jesus Christ and to promote within the church holiness and fidelity, faithfulness to this one who has done everything necessary through his life, death, and resurrection, his ascension, and his ongoing work of intercession at the right hand of the Father right now. He's done everything necessary to bring us to the Father. Revelation reveals to us not a great curiosity about the future. I said that in the very first sermon, and here as we enter into the last chapter, I am more resolved than ever. And I hope that our view of Revelation has shifted and seeing that Revelation is not about helping us to understand what the future days will be like. It is about helping us see and savor Christ in his fullness on his throne, ruling and reigning sovereignly in the church age and promoting within us a greater faithfulness to him. It doesn't get more practical than that. And as we come together to chapter 22, I want us to see this view of heaven, not in terms of just how cool is heaven going to be, but in terms of a practical means of grace for the church of Jesus Christ today. A means of grace for you this morning in the midst of your struggles in the midst of your heartache, in the midst of all the difficulties of life that you go through. Revelation chapter 22, we begin reading in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you once again as we continue in this revelation of the new Jerusalem. 
of the new heaven and the new earth, of the promised future of every true believer. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to see and understand why you've given us this picture of heaven and how you intend it as a means of grace for your children today, for your church today, for your people today, in the midst of all the hardships and struggles we face in living faithful to Jesus in our day. Father, we do confess to you, we are who we are by grace. We are your people because you've chosen us before the foundation of the world to love us with an everlasting love. We didn't merit it. We didn't earn it. We weren't good enough for it. It is completely your mercy and your grace and your electing love for us. And so with that, Father, we confess that even as your children, just as we did nothing to earn your salvation, we can do nothing to keep ourselves in it. We are in constant need of your grace and your mercy to grow us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, that we would finish the race that you began for us. And Father, help us to see how you intend this vision of heaven as a means to that end. This anticipation of what will be should give us something to hold on to, to cling to, to apply to our lives today that we might constantly battle sin in our flesh and the world around us. Help us, O oh God. Do not let our joy in heaven be just a satisfaction of our curiosity of what heaven will be like. Help us to understand and see what makes heaven heaven is Christ. That the radiance and the beauty of gold and diamonds and jewels has nothing to do with gold and diamonds and jewels. It has everything to do with the radiance of the glory of God. And all these other things are simply a reflection of the God that you are. Help us to find our hope and our satisfaction in you. Continue to teach us. Continue to mold us. Help us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Anticipation is a part of life. Anticipation, it can do a number of different things in our lives. Anticipation can build hope. Anticipation can give you something to cling to. If you, you've got something you're looking forward to, uh, an upcoming concert, uh, something going on in your life, uh, something big, thing, you cling to it, even through difficult days. You, you, you hope and anticipate, I just can't wait for that thing. That is what's getting me forward. Through the difficulty, I'm anticipating something wonderful that's on the horizon. Now, on the other hand, anticipation can also rob you of joy and bring fear. Anticipation of an upcoming surgery. Anticipation of a funeral, upcoming funeral of a lost of a loved one. Anticipation can bring hope and joy, but it can also bring fear. And rob you of joy. But make no mistake about it. Anticipation is a part of life. And it's a part of the Christian life as well. And as we come to Revelation chapter 22. Anticipation of heaven. Is intended as a means of grace. To strengthen and encourage you. And me. Today. As we live in a world. 
that is in rebellion to Christ, as we live in a flesh that's constantly tempted to drift away from Christ, to turn away from Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, the all-sufficient glory and the fullness of God in whom is everything that I need, the anticipation of heaven is meant as a means of grace to keep us through the most difficult of times. And I think the, our confidence in this should be seen in John's letter to the seven churches. Remember, the context of the book of Revelation is God in Christ Jesus addressing the seven churches, representative of every church in every age, addressing them of the areas in their church where they have compromised faith to Jesus, where they have compromised Jesus as all. They've let false teachers come in. They, they've, <clears throat> they've, their hearts have been tempted to other idols, Christ plus something. So they gather together as a church in Jesus' name. Are the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ. We worship Christ, yet their hearts are worshiping other things. And the letter to the seven churches were exposing those realities. Jesus told the, uh, the, the Ephesian church, those who had lost their first love in chapter 2, to you who overcome, what? Your lost love for Jesus. To you who overcome, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Do you hear the anticipation? Ephesian church, you've drifted. You've lost your love for Jesus. Now, you still gather and you talk about Jesus, but you've lost that first love, that passion, that desire that Christ is all. And I have this against you, and there are consequences for this. But to you who overcome... Anticipate this. You will eat of the tree of life in the first paradise of God. Do you hear here? Anticipation is a means of grace to the persecuted church in Smyrna. The Lord writes, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The judgment of God, final judgment. To you who overcome, you, you continue faithfully unto Jesus. Anticipate. God's judgment will do nothing to you. Cling to that anticipation. Do you see? Anticipation is a means of grace. To the church at Pergamum, where the, the faithful had been martyred and idolatrous teaching had crept into the church, Christ told the overcomers to anticipate, if you conquer, you'll be fed manna in heaven. Do you hear? Anticipate this wonderful, glorious thing. And use it as a means of grace to hold fast to Christ. When false teachers have come into your church, get them out. Keep a pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ in your midst. To the Thyatiran church, who had been overcome by immorality and false teaching, he declared that the overcomers would have authority over the nations which is something we, we saw last week in the end of chapter 21. Anticipate this. Right now, the, the nations are, are persecuting you, but hold if you will conquer, hold fast to Christ. You will rule over the nations. To the church at Sardis, the overcomers were told that they would be clothed in white garments, having their names in the book of life. You see, he's giving them something to anticipate. To the suffering church in Philadelphia, the Lord declared, he who overcomes, 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Do you hear this glorious picture of the life you will have with God in the new heaven and the new earth? Use that, anticipate that in the midst of your suffering. Hold fast in your suffering. Don't drift away from Christ. Don't turn to other answers. Hold to Christ. Anticipate what what belongs to those who conquer. Holding to Christ. And to the seventh church, the Laodicean church, who was what? The lukewarm church. The overcomers were promised to sit down with Christ on his throne. So to the churches... Those seven churches who are representative of every church in every age, because we ourselves go through the same things. Those are symbolic of us. The idolatry, the temptation to turn to other gods and suffering and persecution and compromise and allow false teaching, which to the naked ear doesn't sound like false teaching because it it talks about Jesus and everything. It talks about God, but it's it's a false teaching because it it diverts away from God and his motives and his glory and, and the centrality of Christ. When all these things are going on, This vision is given, a vision first and foremost of Christ enthroned, of Christ enthroned and sovereign and ruling. This picture of Christ who will judge the nations, the seal judgment, the trumpet judgment, the bold judgments, final judgment. This king on a throne who will not allow his name to be marred or his people to be marred. And then this vision of Christ on the throne. And then this vision of heaven, of Christ on his throne, eternally so. All of the redemptive provisions of the cross of Jesus Christ brought to bear upon eternity. And this picture of glory that we've been seeing since chapter 21 is meant as a means of grace to encourage the church, to encourage believers in the midst of suffering. To live as overcomers by holding on to Jesus. Not by, come on, try harder, try harder, be stronger. Trying harder and being stronger for the Christian means clinging more tightly to Jesus, knowing him, knowing the fullness of who he is, and living upon the fullness of his person and work. That's what the book of Revelation is. And do you see why it's the most practical book in the New Testament for the church today? Whatever our problem, the answer has been given. Christ enthroned. Christ sovereign. Christ glorious and beautiful. And this picture of Christ in eternity with his people forever and ever. And we learn something very important here in the book of Revelation. For you and I, our regular pursuit of encouragement, which we all need, right? Our regular pursuit of encouragement to live as overcomers in this world comes one way. If you're here this morning, you think, I just need encouragement. The book of Revelation has the answer. Your encouragement comes by fixing your gaze upon Jesus Christ. And how do you, in his word, in his word, fixing your gaze upon Jesus Christ knowing him, knowing who he is, knowing what he's done, knowing the fulfillment of how Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of God, 
and then even anticipating this vision of heaven of which the throne is front and center. Christ, the Godhead on the throne, front and center, and God's people with him forever. There's the encouragement. Now the problem comes, does that encourage you? If you hear that and you think, that doesn't help me, don't fast forward past that. See that as there's a problem in my soul that Christ is not enough. If our hope is in the things of this world, if we're trying to find encouragement and hope from people and things and circumstances in this life, you're going to continue down this downward spiral of despair. Because even if you get your hands on something that in a moment brings you joy and happiness, that thing is not the infinite joy of God. But if our hope and our anticipation rests upon all that Jesus is and all that he's accomplished, well, then you will find courage and encouragement and strength and grace for everything in life. Everything. How does this Revelation 22 teaching of the new Jerusalem help us to live as overcomers? I want us to consider it in two ways. Number one, Let's by looking at the scene, the scene that's depicted for us here. And then I also want us to think about the effects, the scene and then the effects of the scene. Number one, the scene itself. How are we to picture the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth? Well, John's description of heaven goes all the way back to chapter 21. We spent last Sunday's message focusing upon a, a right and biblical understanding of heaven. And I, I, we, I, some of you have had conversations with us since then. We kind of burst some bubbles. Streets of gold, pearly gates, all that stuff. It's not what you think it is. And for that matter, I'm not even confident they're there. John says it looks like these things. His point in using that imagery is saying everything is reflecting the glory of God and it's radiating in such a way. Here's the only thing I know on earth to describe it. It looks like streets of gold everywhere. It look, the gates look like pearls. All I know is the glory of God is so magnificent. I, I'm just searching for descriptions to try to describe it. And there is nothing more evil in the world than our joy in heaven to be those things rather than understanding what makes whatever those things are, those things, the radiance of God. What makes heaven heaven is God in Christ and his glory and the nearness of God's people to God in this new holy of holies where God dwells forever. Chapter 21 begins this scene of heaven. And chapter 22, it kind of, it gets confusing because you have a chapter break. At the end of chapter 1, then chapter 22 starts and you have five verses. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 is a continuation of that. Don't let the chapter break confuse you. This is a continuation of what John has already been painting for us here. And as we look at verses 1 through 5 together, the, the continued scene, building upon what we've seen so far... There's a couple things that John brings to our attention. The first is this, that heaven is a place of abundant satisfaction. 
All right, this is building upon everything we saw last week. That what makes heaven heaven is God himself. And now he can say about this, as he's, heaven is a place of abundant satisfaction. Now, in order to really benefit and see the value of the, the, the imagery he gives us here, you got to understand that John's day, living on the island of Patmos in the region to the churches in which he's writing, it's a desert climate. It's an arid climate. Um, it's, it's a desert land for all general. And so how do you communicate the fullness of abundant satisfaction in a place where it's just dry all the time and arid all the time? Well, a great, a great contrast to that is water, a river, and that's exactly what he uses here. We see in verse, chapter 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me a, the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So in the midst of this, you know, they're accustomed to just dryness and, and even water itself is a precious commodity. He says, I see water of life, clearest crystal. It's pure. It's not mixed and mingled with pollutants. No chemical runoffs, no debris. The water that I see, John is explaining in this vision, is something so pure, so fresh, so brilliant. It's always inviting. You put the Mississippi River in a desert climate, uh, it's great to see water, but that's not inviting, is it? You've been to the Mississippi River, right? It's not exactly blue. It's not exactly clear. It's not exactly, praise the Lord, fresh water. But this is nothing of that kind. This water is clear, it's undiluted, it's pure, it's brilliant. And what's the point? The intention here is for John to communicate the water of life. It's come from God. This is not water for water's sake. Where does he say the water is coming from? It's flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. This is, this is symbolic of, this is a satisfaction that comes from God himself, from Christ himself upon the throne. Now we see this kind of imagery pictured elsewhere. The psalmist pictures this in Psalm chapter 46. When he writes, there's a river whose streams Make glad the city of God, the, uh, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So there's a, a refreshment of water. And it's symbolic of a spiritual reality, a refreshment that comes from God that nothing else can provide. This is what Jesus, when he met with uh, the Samaritan woman, said to her. She came to the well looking for physical water. And what did Jesus say to her? He said, I can give you living water, a water for which you drink from me. You will never thirst again. He's not talking about physical water. He's not saying you're never going to have to visit a well again. He's saying that physical thirst was given by God as a picture of a deeper need, of a spiritual need, of spiritual thirst. And Jesus is saying, in me, I am a well of water that springs up to eternal life. And, and by drinking of me, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, 
you'll never thirst again. You come and you take me for the fullness of all that I am and all that I do and will do, in her case, in going to the cross, you will have everything you've ever looked for in me, abundant satisfaction in me. Jesus told those at the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7 that believing in him, Jesus Christ, would cause rivers of living water to flow in their innermost being, in their innermost being. Again, water here is symbolic of what? Of a spiritual reality. There's a need, there's a desire, there's a craving, there's a void that as sinners, we constantly were trying to fill that with other things. And Christ continually is saying, I am, the, I am what fills that void. I will fill that in such a way that no one or nothing else can, and you will never thirst again. I am that all-sufficient. I am that full. I am that glorious. Whatever the water, wherever the water flows, spiritually, it always provides abundant satisfaction. Why? Because it flows from the throne of God. And the water itself is throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus said, I'm the living water. The water is Christ. The water is Christ. And that's the, the primary thrust of this picture. You, church, who are suffering at the hands of persecutors, you, church, who are constantly tempted by your own flesh to drift away from Christ, to pursue other lovers, to go into idolatry, to make something else your God, anticipate this. Everything you're looking for and needing will be filled out of this river that flows from the throne of God, so brilliant, so pure, so full. And that's Christ. Cling to that. When you're tempted to despair, when you're tempted to pursue something else, keep this vision in mind. Christ is what you need. Christ is the only thing that can fulfill you and give you that superlative abundance that your soul is seeking for. Time's not going to allow us to elaborate, but John reinforces the abundance the abundant satisfaction that flows from the throne of God in Christ Jesus to the soul of the believer for all eternity. In this picture, he gives the picture here of a tree of life on either side. A tree of life. Abundant life. Satisfying life. There's an echo of Eden there. He also talks about that the tree bearing 12 different kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. Here's what's fascinating about that. In chapter 21, we have the eradication of all time, right? In final judgment, the earth is for all general, rolled up like a scroll, judgment upon it. Now there's no more time. And yet here in this anticipatory vision of heaven we have this picture of a tree that bears fruit every month why is he using a calendar term when in eternity there's really no calendar god is our calendar i mean just we're consumed by him not by what day is it today so why here this every month there's a fresh the idea here is it's just an overabundance 
Just as in our physical world in this day, the months roll on. And if you, like you think about it, in your budget, right? In your budget, the start of the month, you got a little bit more money. And then as the month is rolling around, expenses, you look down and there's no money there. And then you hope that paycheck comes at the start of the month. And right, there's, a, there's abundance might be a strong word to use for budget, but there's a replenishment. That's the idea here. It never runs out. The abundant satisfaction in Christ in eternity. It never runs out. And then he gives the picture here that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Well, in heaven, there's no healing necessary. So what's, what's the point there? Again, it's the anticipation here to the church in the present age saying, no matter what your present condition, no matter what your struggle right now, no matter what you're going through right now, the healing leaves indicate a complete absence of any want, any need, any struggle. It doesn't exist anymore. The point here being this vision is an abode of abundant satisfaction. There is no weakness. There is no need. There is nothing left undone. Why? Because Christ is there. The, this brilliant river coming from the throne is the fullness of Christ and who he is. And there's nothing left undone. He also points to us a picture here that uh, as we think about the scene on display here, this is not only a place of abundant satisfaction, it's a place of security. Security. And that all revolves around the throne of God that's on display here. The centrality of heaven is this throne of God where the Father and the Son reside. Because of God and the Lamb on the throne, you can bank all these promises of the new heaven and new earth. They are secure. Everything that God has promised in Jesus Christ. We, none will stand there before God and think, oh, it's, it wasn't what it was portrayed to be. Uh, Christ isn't everything that I was led to believe it would be. No, the throne there is God. And he's simply saying, I'm the one who holds this together. I am the fullness of it, my son. And he is securing for his people all the promises he made to them, to those who conquer, to those who cling to Jesus Christ. There will be no disappointment. So we look at the scene. We have abundant satisfaction and the security of that satisfaction in Christ because of the one on the throne. Do you see that? So then what are the effects? The second thing. What are the effects? What is life like in heaven? You know, I was thinking about that this week. I think it's clear that our generation has a lot of unhealthy, preconceived notions about what life in heaven will be like. We live in a day today where heaven is not talked about the way it has been talked about in past generations. Today we glamorize heaven into, you know, walking around with friends and, you know, depending upon the context of what the depiction is, maybe, you know, playing instruments and riding on clouds and just kind of a big party in heaven. Thought of as almost like a great rec center just up in heaven. Personally, as I've just kind of been 
thinking more about heaven. Um, because of this study, I've been convicted that, one, I haven't thought enough about heaven, understanding it as a means of grace, but what thoughts I have had bear no reflection whatsoever to what God reveals in Revelation 21 and 22, which is heaven is about the glory of God. But here, as we think about the effects of heaven upon the soul of a believer, we can say it this way, everything is affected by it. Everything is affected by heaven. Let's think about first the atmosphere in heaven. What's it like in heaven? Well, John puts it very precisely in a couple of phrases here in our text. That the atmosphere of heaven is holy. It's one of a kind. It's unique. It's like nothing we've ever experienced before. And we see that where we see like in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, that's not new, that there would no longer be any curse. There, there, there will, we're going to read on, uh, verse 5, and night will be no more. Uh, no more curse, no more night. Well, that, we were told that in chapter 21, verse 4. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have all passed away. The focus here, I think the holiness of this place is that there will no longer be. Why? Why Why will there no longer be all these things? I mean, we take a lot of joy in the fact that these things won't be, but why will there no longer be these things? And the answer lies in Christ. In Christ Jesus. Specifically in the cross of Christ. Death and mourning and crying, crying over sorrow, pain and curse and night, which again, we're not talking about physical night, we're talking about night as a symbol of spiritual darkness, right? A soul that is in darkness with regard to God and Christ. So all these things which are in the world, they met their match at the cross, these Fruits of Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve, their sin against God, brought in all kinds of horrible things into the world in which we live. Crying and tears and death and sorrow and, and, and spiritual darkness so that we're dead in trespasses and sin and we're dead towards the things of God. All of these wretched things introduced in Genesis chapter 3, Christ severed the head of them all at the cross when he died, when he rose again. And the picture here in Revelation 22, where there is, again, no longer be mourning and sickness and death and sorrow and tears. And the, the, the picture here is of the victory of Christ. Please do not, this would be the most sinful thing in the world, to cling to this vision of those things without reference to Christ Jesus without reference to praise be to Christ, who through His life, His death, and His resurrection conquered those things that were introduced by Genesis chapter 3. 
we praise Christ for who He is and what He's done because He has removed these things. These things are no more because of our King, because of what He's done. He is the central focus of heaven. And the enjoyment of the atmosphere where there are no more of these things is simply the overflow and the effect of Christ Jesus and His glory and all that He's accomplished. But John and Jesus wants the church to ponder this because of Jesus. As you look to Jesus and you see Him enthroned victorious through His life and death, ponder there will be no more curse in heaven. Ponder this. When you turn on the news and you read the nightly news and you see the most horrific things, ponder Christ Jesus through His life and death has severed the head of this thing. And in the consummation of the kingdom of God, these things will be no more. Anticipate it and use it as a means of grace, a means of hope to not allow the world to cause us to drift into despair and coldness and dullness and even go, to go so far as to question God. But rather take those things and use this vision of heaven as a means of grace to praise God for Jesus Christ who through His life, death, and resurrection has conquered these things. And our hope is in Him. And by clinging to Him, one day we will be in an atmosphere where we don't ever have to think about these things again. Not for those things' sakes, but because of the Christ who did it all. Ponder this. There will be no longer be any curse. Ponder that there will be no more spiritual darkness. Use it as a means of grace to turn your heart to Christ. As we think about the effects, not just the atmosphere, but there's a focal point in heaven. And the focal point in the center of it all, the throne of God. The throne of God and the Lamb of this is what makes heaven heaven. The throne of God. The great privilege of the undeserving, unworthy, elect of God, saved by grace, sustained by grace, because of Jesus Christ, being brought before the throne of the living God, to dwell day after day after day with Him, the focal point. His glory, the focal point. Can you imagine? I was thinking a little bit about this this week. The disciples, after Jesus' death, were distraught. They didn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't understand the necessity of it. They didn't understand the reality of his resurrection. And those, those few days when Jesus was, was in the grave, I mean, they were distraught. They didn't undersway. They were pining away in sorrow because Christ was not in their midst. This one that they loved so much, now all of a sudden had been stripped away from them and all was lost. But oh, how quickly things changed for them when news came he's alive 
Oh, how quickly things changed. Joy filled their soul. When after being in such sorrow, being separated from him, they saw him face to face. They saw him. They touched him. They heard his voice. They gazed upon him. It had only been a couple of days. But so wondrous were those few moments of seeing Christ after for just you know, a few hours not seeing him that we read things like this in the New Testament. John opened his words to the, first John with these words. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What's he doing there? I mean, he's about to write a letter to churches. And yet he is still, this is decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is still opening words of this text. He is overcome by those few minutes of seeing Christ again, of touching and seeing that even this is how he opens his letter. I heard him, I saw him, I touched him. And everything I'm writing to you now is the overflow of my love for him. Peter, who saw the resurrected Christ, humbly wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he saying there? He's saying, I saw Christ. I walked with him. I touched him. I saw glory when I saw Jesus Christ. That's part of the inner circle there. He saw even things that other disciples didn't see. And that has so transformed him that even decades after the fact, he's still living upon the truth of who Christ is, what he saw, what he felt, what, he, what was true of Christ, and building his life upon it. Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, he spoke about the resurrected Christ appearing to the 12, to the 500 brethren at one time, to James. And then he says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, what's the point of this? Are these just kind of in passing? Well, yeah, they're just talking about the resurrected Christ. I think it's much more than that. These are men who were overwhelmed by Christ. They were overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty of the resurrected Christ, seeing him, touching him, hearing him, even ever so briefly on earth. Seeing him, it, it, it made such a difference upon their lives that even after Christ ascended and went to the right hand of God, even for decades their ministry went on. But they were forever touched by and affected by how overwhelmed they were by coming face to face with Jesus Christ. Now, why are we talking about that? Because in comparison to that, dwelling face to face with this king day after day after day for all eternity before the throne of God, where there's now no darkness to hide his face. There's no longer any, any water or anything to distract us. There's nothing to turn us away from Christ. We have full access to Christ and his glory, to touch him, to see him, to hear him day after day after day, no curse to separate us from him. My goodness. This is the focal point of heaven. The great, is this what you desire for? Is this what you aspire for? Does Christ, is he that important to you that you're pursuing that walk with him now while anticipating the fullness of I want that. 
And I'm using my, my walk with the Lord now to keep me on track, to keep me there, to keep me focused upon Christ, for he's the focal point of it all. I'm going to ask this. I've asked it in recent weeks, I think every Sunday. Are you enchanted by Christ in this life? And don't answer that just because you're here on Sunday. How much time have you spent fellowshipping and communicating with Christ this week? How, how many times did you open up the word of God inspired by the spirit of Christ? Every page is about Christ. Every page reveals to you more. How, much, how many times... Did you spend seeking Christ? Is there any evidence in your life right now that you are so overwhelmed by Christ that in your time in the Word, in your prayer life, in the way that you come and worship, that Christ is all? And if He's not a preoccupation here, what is your great interest in heaven? For that matter, the warning of Revelation is, if he's not your preoccupation in this life, don't expect you have a place in the new heaven and new earth. I don't say that cavalierly. I say that as a minister who has a responsibility to, to uphold the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is all. He is the focal point of heaven. And if he's not the focal point of this life, What right do we have to say we expect to have a place there? We'll close with this. Notice the citizens of the new heaven and new earth. This is a description of them there. And why do we need to see this? Because what we see there, we ought to be seeing some of this in our hearts now. What do we see about them there? Number one, they are joyous servants. They're joyous servants. His bond servants will serve him. Verse, end of verse three, his servants will worship him. You see, in heaven, all of life is consumed by the Father and the Son on the throne. All of life will be a, a life of praise, a life of worship, a life of doing, all of which relates to the honor and the glory of God. All of life will be an act of worship. Specifically, I can't fill in the blank to tell you what, what does that look like specifically. But just as God is jealous for His glory in this life, you can sure bet among His people He expects He will be honored and glorified with every breath with every heartbeat, and so it will be. Let me ask you, is that true of you here? No, not, not perfectly. But do you find in your soul you're a joyous servant of Christ? I think Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul presents for us the foundation of this. Paul writes that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Everything should be a joyous act of service to Christ for His honor and for His glory. And that will be true forever of the saints in eternity. That's who they are. Is that who you are? 
Secondly, we're told about these redeemed around the throne of Christ. Not only are they joyous servants, but that these servants will see his face. Verse 4, they will see his face. So, what? remember Moses' request in Exodus 33? Let me see your glory. And God replied, nope, no one can see my face and live. So what Moses could not do on earth, others have had similar, Elijah, what they could not do on earth, these true saints will do forever and ever in eternity. They will see the face of God. One commentator puts it so clearly. Seeing God's face is deadly danger to us now because we're defiled by sin. But then all of our shame and guilt will be a thing of the past as we stand before him beautiful in robe of righteousness that he has given us. What a wonderful thing to anticipate. Do you desire the glory of God? Do you want to see the face of God in this life? I pray that you do. That's the objective evidence of a regenerate heart, that God has given us a heart to love him. And God tells us we can see his face in this way, it's kind of veiled, but in the face of Jesus Christ through the word of God. Do you pursue the face of God in this life? And if you aspire for that here, with all that goes on around us, what great news this is that one day, to those who conquer in this life, clinging to Jesus, looking to the face of God in Jesus Christ, you will see him face to face. You will get what your soul most desires. To see God. Every day. A third thing here about these saints in heaven. The intimacy of their relationship with him. Is in this phrase. And his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 4. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. We've talked about this before. There's a contrast in Revelation between those who bear the mark of Satan and those who bear the mark of Christ. We're not talking about a literal symbol. We're not talking about a literal tattoo. We're talking about a heart. A heart that reflects either the God-hater or the God-lover. And in heaven, every soul will be marked by love for God. Love for Jesus. That he is all. Now, let me ask you this morning, does that characterize you now? No, not perfectly. But is there within you that, that love for, is there any evidence of being marked on your soul for Christ, set apart unto Christ to love him, to serve that he is all? Why would we think that we will be counted among these in heaven who are marked totally unto him if there's no indication that we're marked unto him here. Fourthly, for those in heaven, there's no need for the light or the lamp. Verse 5, and they will, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. The redeemed just live in the light of the glory of God. There's no need for sun, moon, all these things. Whether they'll be there or not, I don't know. I don't care. Just don't care if there's streets of gold. Don't care if there's pearly gates. I don't care. 
What we care about is God there. His glory there. The light of His glory. The transcendent beauty and majesty of God. And because He's there, we don't need anything else. We don't need anything else. Let me ask you now. Does that reflect your soul? I don't need anything else. Whatever the world has to offer, I don't need it. The glory of God is the great treasure of life. And that's what I want. And then he closes, for those saints, they will reign forever and ever. John doesn't fill in the details on that. And I'll be perfectly honest, I have no idea what that looks like. I'll be honest. Sounds good. This vision of heaven from chapter 21, verse 9 to chapter 22, verse 5 is meant as a means of grace to you and I in this world and all of our struggles as an anticipation. Conquer. Don't give up. Don't drift. Don't turn away from this God. Don't turn away from this Christ. Look what belongs to those who by grace finish well. Finish clinging to Jesus Christ. Do you see that? We need to think Godward. We need to think heavenward. We need to, as the New Testament, set our minds on things above. Not just for heaven's sake. Not just because I need a place where there's no more tears. I need a place where there's no... No, where Christ is. Where He is, because that's what I want. What a wonderful picture is given to us for us in our daily need. And in a real sense, this passage is an encouragement to us that we would live as overcomers. Whatever you come in here with this morning, whatever the struggle, whatever the temptation, whatever the drift, Whatever the area of compromise in your life, the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to bring those things, to run to the cross, to confess them, to repent, to appropriate Christ's blood upon the cross to your life, to your sin, that those sins may be forgiven. And to return to this person, return to this gaze of the fullness of who he is and the life that he's promised for those who believe. The life that God has accomplished for his glory. And for our good. But I would remind you of this. This vision of heaven. It's not a universal. It's not even for every church member. It's for those who even in this life bear some semblance. That what heaven will be like. Focused upon the throne. Focused upon Christ. Engaged in him forever. That should be what our life is about now, is it? How is it this morning between your soul and Jesus Christ? 